and at Solano, and because of that, the name, I guess you've already known that. Um, what I'd like to do is we're going to continue in our series in Luke this morning, um, and I'd like to start us off with a word of prayer to, to, to sort of center us, get us uh, engaged um, with God, and, and, and ask him to, to teach us as we, as we look at scripture this morning. So let's pray. Lord God, we're, we're so grateful to be here gathered as the community of believers, your church, here to worship you. Uh, we're so grateful for Jesus and his sacrifice for us that uh, allows us to um, approach the throne of God with the righteousness of Christ and to be uh, brought back as the people of God. And Lord, we're, we're here uh, as a community to, uh, to sing, to pray, to study scripture, and all of it is glorifying and worship to you, Lord God. Uh, we just ask for you to, to be present with us as we take a look at scripture, uh, to be breaking down uh, barriers in our hearts, to be um, working and softening us to what you have to teach us, Lord, that it would not just be something that's in our head, but would move to our hearts, that would change our, what do we believe, how we live, um, everything that shapes who we are, Lord. So just touch us at a deep level. We ask for your spirit to be moving powerfully this morning through the words of scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Grab your Bibles. Open up to Luke chapter 23. We are continuing in our series through Luke called Total Transformation. And we've been walking through, uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we're going to be handing out some Bibles. There's a couple guys walking around handing out Bibles. If you don't have one, raise your hand. We'd love to give you one. If you don't have one and you want to take this Bible home, you can take it home. It's yours to keep. Uh, We're going to be in Luke chapter 23, and it's on page 755 in that white Bible that we're handing out. Now, we've been going through uh, this Gospel of Luke, and we're now in the midst of the trial of Jesus as he's before the Roman authorities. He's been walking through Uh, His ministry, walking towards Jerusalem, and now has been betrayed, arrested, has been tried in sort of a grand jury trial before the Jewish leaders, and then now brought before the Roman authorities. And this is where we pick up the story, as we're jumping back into the story now, where Jesus is interacting with Pilate, this Roman Roman governor. And what we're going to see as we look at this text, we're in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 13. We're going to see the truth about who Jesus is as the God and King, in the irony of this criminal trial that Jesus is going through, okay? So let's read together. We're going to start in Luke chapter 23, verse 13 and following. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. 
But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demands should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of the Lord. Now, you might recall Pilate from last week. We, we looked at sort of the first part of this interaction with Jesus and the Roman authorities, and Pilate uh, is a Roman military man. I'm going to sort of circle back on some of the things we talked about last week. Uh, his title is prefect, and it's a Roman military term. He, he had authority over a region of the Roman Empire and something like 500 to 1,000 soldiers within the city of Jerusalem to keep the peace and to collect tribute for the Roman emperor. So Pilate, his main job was to keep the peace in the area. And if there was any type of, you know, disgruntled citizens or there's a riot going on or people are angry, the Roman emperor is going to hear about it and Pilate's going to be the guy that's in trouble. Okay, so I want you to understand that about his position and where he's at because it's going to inform what Pilate does in this story. Now, the other thing uh, that we need to understand about Pilate is sort of the nature of his character. Pilate was a brutal guy. He was a, a, an insensitive, brutal military leader. And he took power in the region of Judea, which is where Jerusalem is located, in AD 26, about, let's say, four to five years before Jesus' public ministry. And when he took power, he mandated that all the coins in Jerusalem be imprinted with the head of the Roman emperor. You know, we have heads on our coins, right, of our presidents or whoever. And for the Jewish people, this was a direct violation of their law, of the Torah. And they would have, there was this huge outcry in AD 26. So there's these riots, violent confrontations, people following Pilate out of Jerusalem to sort of his, his uh, hideout, like over near the sea. And they're rioting and clashing with all of the Roman uh, uh, military people. And eventually Pilate gives in and he says, okay, fine, we'll, we'll get rid of that. And he, he, he makes the people happy. This is the first thing in a whole line of all kinds of these uh, insensitive, brutal things that, that Pilate has done in, in expressing violence or insensitivity to Jewish customs. So over the years, it's been now five, six, seven, eight years that Pilate's been in power when Jesus is here at a trial before him. Pilate has constantly posturing himself with his insensitivity and whatever he's doing to try and make the people happy. He's always trying to figure out some way to keep the peace. This is the, the backdrop of the passage that we're looking at. So what I want to do as we look at this passage in more detail is I want to look at three different ironies in this passage that are going to illuminate a, the, the deep meaning of what is in this text. Okay, so three different ironies of what's going on. The first one is in verses 13, and 14, or 13 through 16, excuse me. Uh, Let's look at those verses again. Luke 23, verses 13 through 16. I'm just going to sort of um, skim through these and and point out a few important things. So verse 13 says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. And he said to them, you brought me this man who is misleading the people. So there's a couple things going on. Uh, There's three different people, or three different groups of people that are there. The chief priests and the rulers and then now the people are present. Now, if you, if you think back the last couple of weeks, the last couple sermons, the last couple uh, texts that we've been looking at, Jesus, everything that's been going on with Jesus up to this point has been in secret. He was betrayed in secret. 
He was arrested in secret in the garden. He was brought before the Jewish leadership in secret. The people, the crowds of people in Jerusalem, okay, it's a festival time, so the city swells with people. Uh, Similar to like San Francisco swells with people during like a work day. It's like 150,000 extra people come into the city during like 8 to 5 and then leave again. It's like during festivals, a city like Jerusalem would just swell with people. So the crowds had no idea what was going on. They didn't know Jesus was arrested yet. And so Pilate, he goes, hey, he, he gets the crowds gathered together outside of his palace and all of the chief priests and the rulers. And if we're reading this and understanding the crowds didn't know what was going on yet, that should be a point of interest for us because we've got to see how they're going to react. Because here's, here's the deal with what's been going on in the Gospels. The crowds were often the only thing keeping Jesus from being arrested and killed. The crowds were the ones who liked Jesus. They were the ones who were just so, so enthralled with Jesus' teaching and his miracles. And the rulers wanted to constantly arrest and kill Jesus. And the only reason they didn't is because they didn't want to start a riot with the people. So now all of a sudden, Pilate brings the people who should be favoring Jesus into the picture. And what's going to happen? Now, the irony I want to focus on, this first one, is in the charge that's against Jesus that's listed in this text here. It says that you brought me this man who was misleading the people. Now, if, I'm, I'm reading out the ESV, but if you have another version, you might have something like inciting a rebellion or uh, perverting the people. It's another way of, of using that term. Uh, essentially what that means is he's treasonous or in, is guilty of insurrection in some way. Misleading the people is in some way usurping or, or undermining the authority of the Jewish leaders and the Roman occupiers. So that type of a charge, that's worthy of death. That's, that's crucifixion worthy. Now, let me say just a quick word about, about crucifixion. Crucifixion was a, the most brutal way to die and was basically only reserved for non-Roman citizens. So if you were a Roman citizen, you weren't going to be crucified because that's like, that's like, that's like too bad for a citizen even. So only slaves and, and, and foreigners were crucified. So crucifixion was a public display to show that you shouldn't mess with the emperor. Basically, you literally strung up or nailed to a piece of wood outside of the city gates so that people can walk by as they're entering the city and see this is what happens to somebody who tries to undermine the authority of the emperor. So Jesus is being charged with misleading the people or, or causing some type of insurrection. Earlier on in, in the chapter, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Okay, and Jesus says, you've said so. So he doesn't exactly say yes, but the implication is yes. And if you're claiming to be a king, you're undermining the authority of the emperor. Okay, so this is serious business. Now, it's interesting, uh, Jesus is also, by the Jewish leadership, he's also accused of being God, or of blasphemy, which is essentially claiming to be God. The Jewish, so, so Pilate asks him, are you king of the Jews? He says, you've said so. The Jewish leadership, earlier on in chapter 22, asks him, are you the son of God? And he says, you've said so. So the two charges that Jesus is brought with are claiming to be God and claiming to be king. The irony of this is that he really is God and king, and the charges are true. So in some way, okay, Jesus is innocent, he's sinless, yes. 
The charges are true, but they're not crimes because they're true of who he is. So in some way, the, the charges are being brought before the leaders of the, the, the Jewish people and the Roman authorities, and they're saying, this guy claims to be God and he claims to be a king. He should be killed. The reality is it's, it's true. He is the true God and the true king in this story. The text is, is making that point in sort of a, a coming through the back door of saying he actually is, it's interesting, it's funny that he gets charged with those things because he is the God and he is king. Okay, so that's the first uh, irony I want to point out in this text. Um, the second one is going a little bit deeper on these charges that Jesus has brought with. It's in these same verses, verses 13 to 16. Okay, so it said that he was charged with misleading the people. Now, here's a question. Who was accusing him of that crime? If you look earlier in chapter 23, it says that the whole company of the, the chief priests and the scribes who are part of the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council, they bring Jesus to Pilate early in the morning on Friday, and they say this man is charged with misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And he's claiming that he himself is Christ, a Messiah, or a king. This is verse 2 of chapter 23. Now, what's interesting is Jesus is, he's charged with misleading the nation. And you have to catch this with what's going on with the leaders here. Okay, Jesus, here he is the true God and King. He's walking humbly towards the cross to accomplish salvation for his people. And at the same moment, the Jewish leaders are rejecting Jesus and convincing the people that Jesus is a criminal and he's not their Messiah. They are the ones, it's the chief priests and the scribes who are misleading the nation. You see that? They're the ones who are misleading him. They're the ones who are causing the people to in some way reject the true God and true King who's sitting right before them. You see, they're the ones who are guilty of the insurrection in the ultimate sense of the true king. So this text is clear. It's saying Jesus is the true king in this story. Now let's look at the the third one, the third and sort of final bit of irony I want to point out in this text. Um, In verses 18 and 19, we see that the people want to condemn Jesus and release another guy named Barabbas. Okay, so... This was a, uh, probably a tradition that Pilate had. Now, remember what I said about Pilate at the beginning here, about who he is, the brutality of his character, and then also how he tries to sort of please the people and, and continue to, to deal with the things that he kept doing wrong. Uh, it, he had a tradition, it seems, to release a prisoner at the Passover festival in order to make the people happy. And so this was some tradition he had that fits right in with his character and what he would do with the people. Now, if you want to see something interesting in your Bibles, try and find verse 17. It goes, verse 16, I will therefore punish and release him, and then goes straight to 18. At least it does in the ESV and the NIV. Most of your Bibles are not going to have verse 17. The verse exists, but it's not there in the most reliable Greek manuscripts for this text. And so it's not that it's not true or that it doesn't actually happen. The verse would have said something like this. Now Pilate was obliged to release one man to them at the festival. All three of the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, have that verse. 
it's not here in your book of Luke, not because it's not true or because Luke wouldn't have written that. I think most scholars would say that in some way it was added later and Luke probably didn't put it in there, not because he didn't think that it actually happened, but maybe because he just didn't want to bother or tell that detail. We don't necessarily know, but the idea is communicating, and we can rely on the other three Gospels to help us understand this, that Pilate did have this tradition of releasing one criminal during the Passover festival. Okay? I just want to make a comment on that in case as you were reading with me at the beginning, you are like, where's verse 17? Now, okay, so in verses 18 and 19, let's take a look at those again and see what, what, what irony is happening in, in verse 18. Read with me. Verse 18, it says, But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, an insurrection started in the city, and for murder. Now, this guy Barabbas was probably a well-known nationalistic figure of some kind. He was some type of a, of a, of a rebel hero who tried to start some type of an insurrection or, or a, a, something, a coup against the, the Roman leadership and failed. And they were probably looking forward to having him released because if this is some tradition Pilate has, everybody goes, oh, he's probably going to release Barabbas today. That's going to be cool. Like, we should go down to the palace and check this out and watch. So a crowd gathers outside on the morning before the Passover. So put yourself in this crowd for a moment. I want you to just imagine the scene. So you're all now the crowd. So imagine this. Over the past couple of months, the number of months or possibly years, you've been hearing about Jesus, seeing his miracles, listening to his teaching. There's something deep inside you that's stirred up when he talks about the kingdom of God, loving your neighbor, turning the other cheek, talking about taking up your cross to follow him. You can't put your finger on it, but this guy Jesus is different from other would-be messiahs. There's something different about him. You really like him, even if, the, even if your leadership of your, of your people are uncomfortable with him. You want to off him. But now everything is sort of getting confusing in this moment. You're kind of looking forward to having Barabbas released. You showed up at the palace that morning. You look up and you see Jesus in chains and you go, wait a second, when did that happen? Sometime last night while you were sleeping. He was arrested in secret. And all of a sudden you see him standing there in chains and you go, what in the world is happening? You see that Pilate is standing there on the sort of the portico of his palace and he's saying that this man Jesus is innocent. This dirty rat Pilate is claiming that Jesus is innocent. And then your own people's leaders, the chief priests who you look up to, people that are interpreting the law and telling your people how to live, they're looking at Jesus and saying, no, he's guilty. I mean, who are you going to side with? In this confusion of the moment, you, Jesus, you thought he was a great leader in some way, but you weren't really sure about him. And now all of a sudden you're faced with, do, we, do I side with Pilate or do I side with the leaders of my own people? Do I get this guy Barabbas released or Jesus released? Can you see how things would have gotten really screwy that morning? Uh, we don't know exactly how it panned out because the Gospels, each one of the Gospels gives us sort of a different flavor of how the crowd was that morning. So we don't know exactly if it was purely confusion. I mean, I, we don't know. I think there was some crazy mixture of political posturing, 
of pressuring from the leaders, of confusion by the crowd, and on a number of other factors in the midst of this situation of this trial. The text of Luke, though, is making a very strong point with these two people in chains, Jesus and Barabbas. You see, we need to look at the name of this man. It says that they wanted to release Barabbas. Now, Barabbas is an Aramaic name, and it's two words put together, okay? Bar and Abba. The word Bar means son or child. The word Abba means father. So this guy in Barabbas, his name literally means son of the father. Whoa. Think about this. Here are these two men in chains, and it's essentially up to the crowd, because the crowd is, Pilate wants to keep the peace. So if the crowd pressures Pilate, he's going to give in. Even though he says three times this man is innocent. You see, one of them, one of these men being charged is claiming to be God and claiming to be king. That's Jesus. The other is guilty of insurrection and murder. And the crowd chooses Barabbas, the fake son of the father, and they condemn the real son of the father. See, if you're, if you're an Aramaic speaker and you're reading, or Greek or Aramaic speaker and you're reading this text, you would like laugh out loud. This is like one of those LOL moments, you know? Okay, so seriously, I mean, it, the irony is just thick in the past. You're reading and you're going, wait, they, they chose to release Barabbas, son of the father, and here Jesus is, they're condemning him to die, and he's innocent. Can you believe that? So this text is clear. Okay, so it's making a very strong point. Jesus is the true Son of the Father, the true God and King. Now, our passage ends with the shouts of the crowd to crucify Jesus. Pilate gives in to their demands, which, you know, is, of course, in keeping with his history and his character. We know that about Pilate. They release Barabbas and hand Jesus over to the soldiers, Roman soldiers, to be crucified. This is where I feel like we need to go a bit deeper with this text and contemplating the meaning of it. Because if you look at the irony of the text, you see that Luke is making this point about Jesus being the true God and King, the one who's sitting there walking humbly to the cross to die. What does this mean for us today? You can look at this text and examine it at arm's length, marvel at the brilliance of Scripture, the depth of the literature. But there's something so much deeper going on beyond that. See, we can look at this from different angles. We could look at how Luke crafted the words, how God ordained the circumstances to make this point of who Jesus really is. But we could leave it there. We could leave it at arm's length. Close our Bibles and go home. The Bible says that Scripture is, the Word of God is alive and active and is penetrating deep into our hearts. This is where we're at with this passage. We have to ask the question, what is, how is this passage shaping us at a deep core heart level? What does it mean to really grapple with the idea that Jesus 
is the true God and true king. Think about the big picture of what's going on here in this text. Jesus is walking towards the cross. If you haven't heard the gospel, this is it. God loves you so much that he himself came to die to take your place because you are so lost. He gave you new life through what he did, and there's nothing you could ever do to deserve his favor. It's only by his grace that you have any hope. You see, we see God's love so powerfully displayed in this scene. Jesus is there, sitting in chains, being beaten and abused, humbly, lovingly, quietly walking towards the cross, all the while knowing that his death means saving the very people who are killing him. That's God's love displayed in real life. See, God's not looking for people who are good enough, okay? We're only good because of what Jesus did on our behalf. So if if you're here this morning and you're broken and you're weary and you're realizing I can't do this, I can't save myself, I'm at the end, there's no hope. Come to Jesus. Trust him. Repent. Tell God that I don't want to be the God of my life anymore. I need Jesus to be my king. Where this passage hits me uh, personally, this in the last couple weeks, just thinking and contemplating about this, this text, uh, I think is in the area of the idea of acceptance. I was reading a book by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory this last week. And and he talks about the promise of God is that we'll be accepted by God because of the gospel. Lewis says that scripture talks about glory in heaven over and over again. It uses all these images of splendor and of robes and singing and of perfection and of beauty. And it's these images that are displaying and talking about the glory that will be in heaven. And in some way, Scripture tells us that we're going to have favor with God and he's going to look on us with approval and blessing. Not because of what we've done, but because of Jesus. Lewis writes that glory, this glory of heaven, is fundamentally being accepted So scripture says God's going to say, in the end, he's going to look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Lewis Lewis calls this the divine accolade. What he has in mind is this pure pleasure of a child, the pure joy there is as a child when your parent looks at you and says, great job, I'm proud of you. We can't think of this acceptance in sort of the twisted way that we live it out now where we try and reach some, we, we try and live up to expectations or try and be accepted by people or twist relationships in order to have people like us or whatever that is. This is a constant struggle of mine, just to, to, to put that out there, that I, I constantly feel like I need to prove that I'm competent or worthy of my title or whatever, or have reached some level of maturity we all feel this to some degree, right? 
deep down we all want to be accepted. I think it's a symptom of something really deep and profound as, as, our, as human beings in our relationship to God. This is what the gospel says. I am accepted not because of what I've done, but because of Christ. This is the truth about what Jesus is accomplishing at the cross, that I might be accepted by my heavenly Father. That there's nothing that can separate me from God because of the righteousness of Christ. My deep longing to be accepted is fulfilled in God through Christ. This played out um, this last week, uh, or a week ago now. I was in uh, Berlin, Germany for a, a conference meeting with missionaries and leaders in urban contexts from across the globe. This is like the global world we live in now. Where, like, I'm meeting with leaders from Singapore, Berlin, London, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, Lyon, France, Los Angeles, San Francisco. And we're all talking about ministry in the context of the diversity and complexity of a large urban center. Uh, as you know, and Kyle mentioned a little bit about San Francisco, um, my family, my wife and daughter and I moved to San Francisco seven months ago. Um, we had a, God opened up a major door for us to have a housing opportunity there and um, has, has continued to open doors for ministry there. And we're sort of just, like, I'm totally freaked out about it, but we're sort of walking, like, step by step through it and going, okay, God, if this is what you're doing, we're going. Um, just last night, uh, Neil and Judy Brower, who've been at Solano a number of times, um, have also, are also living in the city. And we've been getting to know a bunch of people in the city, and they've been getting to know people at the dog park with their Great Dane, because, like, who doesn't want to come and talk to a person with a Great Dane? Um, they, we invited, the Browers invited a bunch of friends over. We had this conversation last night. Like, the four of us and, like, ten, you know, people from the neighborhood in San Francisco, and we talked about, what do you believe about the future of the human race? We just, like, had a conversation for an hour and a half. Somebody came up with this topic. We, like, drew it out of a hat, okay? So um, that was the only reason we talked about that. But what's interesting is I see God knitting together a community there. It just blew my mind last night. We've met with these people a couple times, and it's always been a little awkward. And then all of a sudden last night, a couple people left early, and there's sort of, like, the core is there left. There was about 10 of us. And it's, like, Sarah and I and our daughter another couple and their son, who's only like eight hours younger than our daughter. Uh, and then another two other couples, and one of them we knew was pregnant, and then the other couple told everybody at that meeting that she was also pregnant. So like, then we have Neil and Judy, who are like 20 to 30 years older than everybody in the room, so they're like the grandparents, and so there's like all of these families. Like all of a sudden, there was just like this immediate bond and of community in some way. Like, if you've experienced community in a home group here at Solano, where you just, all of a sudden, you're just like, ah, this just feels right. Like, I love these people. And God is knitting us together in some way that I can't put my finger on. We experience that with these people in the city. It's just amazing. Okay, sorry. I would just talk about that for the next 10 or 15 minutes if I could, but um, I, I feel like I wanted to reiterate that because I feel like God's calling us to multiply this community in San Francisco. So we should start praying about that. That's all I wanted to say about that. Okay, so anyway, at this conference, let me just rewind now back to my story. At this conference I was at, uh, there was one morning I felt, well, overall through this whole thing, maybe you felt this before in context at work or whatever it is, all week long I'm hanging out with these people and I'm 
feeling all kinds of pressure to have something clever to say. I'm feeling like I'm sort of representing our church in some way. I don't know. I, I felt like I had expectations to live up to. Um, my dad is part of the mission agency in like a high-level leadership position. So like I'm like his son, like walking around with all the like people and talking. Everybody goes, oh, you're, they don't say, hey, you're Brent. They say, hey, you're Kevin's son. So I've like, he doesn't put any pressure on me, but I put pressure on me in some way. So there's all this, there's all this struggle that was going on throughout the week. And there was one breakfast where two guys, uh, two of my friends, that I'd, one that I've known a little longer and one that I'd recently met, sat down with me at breakfast, and I was telling them some story about how feeling called to do church planting. And, and they were like, okay, just stop telling us what you feel like people think you should be doing and tell us what you feel like God is telling you to do. I literally couldn't say anything. I just sat there for like two or three minutes and they were like awkwardly looking at me like, you're not going to speak? And I literally was speechless. I was locked up. It was some weird combination of looking at these two guys and knowing there's nothing, I don't feel like I could say something or craft some vision for my life that both of them would, would like and like me because of what I said. So in some way, I felt like if I said something, this guy would maybe not agree with that. Like, whatever. So this is like my own, this is just, the, you're getting into my head now, which is a little scary. So what I was doing is trying to craft some response that would make them like me and like what I had to say and not actually be what I believe or feel or what God is calling me to. And so I was like, if I say something, I know I'm not going to be honest. But if I don't say anything, then it's totally awkward because they're like, what's wrong with you? So this, the, the, one of the guys looked at me and said, look, I don't know what's going on in your heart or in your head right now, but we're safe. You can talk to us. And in some way, I was like, I, didn't, I, I knew it in my head, but I didn't believe it in my heart because in some way I'm feeling like I have to live up to some pressure expectation with these people. So we went into this main session at the conference, and I'm like, God is just, like, wrenching my heart. I'm, like, crying during the music. I don't know what's going on, and I just, like, I can't sit through, like, a 45-minute lesson on missions when this is going on. So I leaned over to, to, um, to this guy who was talking to me at breakfast. I said, I need to talk to you. Let's go out to the lobby of this hotel. So we went out and talked for, like, two or three hours, and I just laid it all out there. I felt like there was this fork in the road. I'm sitting there in that session, and I said, I could just brush this under the rug and be quiet and not say a word, and it would have been awkward, but I can continue to play the game with people, or I could be vulnerable and actually talk to somebody. And I, I, I did it. I talked to him. And one of the things that struck me was he looked at me and said, there's nothing you could do or say right now that would cause me not to love you and like you as a person. He said, just forget all of that stuff. It was displaying the truth of the gospel in that moment. Right? Saying that I could just give up the sort of the charade of everything or trying to manage relationships with people and be free to make mistakes or to be in process and just be like a young person. And be free to be accepted not because of some performance that I was able to put up. That's what's going on inside me, but in the same way I think that Jesus, when I think about this passage, and I see Jesus going to the cross to die for us, 
I'm struck by the fact that he loved us so much that he would sit through this fake trial, this awful trial. He'd be beaten, stripped naked, nailed to a piece of wood, and strung up to die in our place. That even though the people rejected him and chose this false son of the father, Barabbas, the true God and true king walked humbly to the cross so that we can be accepted by our heavenly father. You are accepted. I'm accepted. The heart of our passage that we're looking at this morning is this. Jesus was rejected so that you can be accepted. That's the truth. Let's pray. Lord, we're, uh, we're so humble and grateful. We just want to rest in the incredible power and mighty act of your love, the might of the God of the universe displayed in this Jesus walking to the cross and dying. The humble act of sacrifice is the display of the incredible, immense, infinite power of the God of the universe. We're in awe of you, Father. We're in awe of you because you accept us. You, can, you look down on us in our brokenness, us being lost in rebellion, us trying our hardest to try and please you. You look on us with the righteousness of Christ and you say, well done, good and faithful servant. I love you and I'm proud of you. Lord, we thank you that we're accepted because of Jesus. The fact that Jesus was rejected means that the door is open for us to be accepted. We praise you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go to the Lord's table this morning, celebrate communion together. Uh, This is an opportunity for us to ground ourselves in the truth of the gospel in a tangible way. Jesus' body that was broken and his blood that was shed are tangibly felt, touched, smelled, tasted in these elements as a symbol and as a way for us to remember Jesus' death and our salvation accomplished 2,000 years ago. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, after he'd given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, 